Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner and Pradeep Dasigi from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. For today's episode, we wanted to talk about the uh, evaluation of text generation using the more recent natural language generation systems. And uh, as a guest today, uh, on this episode, we have Asla Chilikilmaz from Microsoft Research. She's a principal researcher there. Welcome to the podcast, Asla. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. We also have as an additional co-host uh, for this episode, Alexis Ross, who is a pre-doctoral researcher at uh, AI2, also on the Allen MP team. Welcome to the podcast, Alexis. Thank you. Also happy to be here. Okay, so let's uh, dive into the topic. Can you, Asha, can can you tell us why natural language generation is uh, hard and uh, what are the challenges involved in evaluating text generation systems? Sure. Actually, thank you for asking this. This is actually a really hard question, but I, I'll, I'll do my best. So first of all, I guess we probably should clarify what we mean by NLG here because there are different definitions. So here, what we mean is, I suppose, is semantically constrained text generation. So uh, like semantically constrained part is mostly described as, as the input, which is in probabilistic term, like the given part. So like the type of the semantic constraint might actually depend on the type of the NLP task. Like, so for instance, if it is image captioning, which is generating one or more sentences describing a given image, the input would be like the features extracting from that image. So if the task is to generate document summaries, then it would be like sequences of words that provide it as input and what have you. So the, the reasons why attributing to why NLG evaluation is hard is I would say that today we have these standardization issues, which I think is very important. So like these automatic metrics are sort of standardized, like using what we call uh, NLTK, Natural Language Toolkit. So these, these are sort of platforms. And in my opinion, they actually kind of um, significantly simplified the process of benchmarking different NLG models for us. However, there's still many NLG tasks that use uh, task-specific evaluation metrics that are non-standard. So frankly, I mean, I do use several of them. So these um, task-specific metrics are not that easy, for instance, as, as a young researcher to find details about, like you need to dig into the literature. So this, this is happening because different NLG tasks deal with different goals. Um, hence, these metrics use, like they... They deal with these non-standard criteria that I've talked about. Like for, as an example, story generation, which is constrained with a list of outline points, for instance, which I worked before, a constraint like Alice was friends with Tom. If that's given, then the generated story is expected to include things like Alice and Tom or things like the friendship between Alice and Tom. So now one can use these engram metrics, but you might need to invent like other metrics, which are semantic metrics to evaluate these criteria. And, and it might not be easy to find examples in the literature to, to... So standardization is one of the things that, in my opinion, makes it hard to evaluate NLG. Another aspect is, is that we really don't know what to evaluate the generated text for. I mean, it also depends on the, on the task, but we... Today, we build these fantastic language generators like these GPT-3 language models. And then we use these standard evaluation metrics 
to evaluate these models. Say, for instance, if the task is summarizer, we need to know what really the end user of this tool is, like what the user really care about in the summary. So in the end, these NLG tasks are actually designed to help humans to improve their productivity. So the evaluation metrics should also care about that as well. Not just Ngram, I guess, um, counts, except that they're also useful. So there's also other, uh, other things like issues relating to ethical concerns. So we have a, a survey paper on NLG evaluation. And in our paper, we talk about the fact that there's still a lack of um, systematic methods for evaluating how effectively an NLG system can actually avoid generating non-ethical or improper or offensive language. In, in the old days, we didn't have these issues actually. So we had these template-based NLG systems or slot-based systems, which is easy to control the generated text, but these older systems also have issues like diversity or, you know, but they didn't have this unpredictable behavior problems that current NLG systems have. There's also other issues like, like I mentioned, like these neural decoders are not easily controllable. It's actually very challenging in my opinion, because we don't have the control we had before, like with these template-based generation models, with this current neural decoding algorithms as much as we had before. We, I mean, instead we have these really strong decoding algorithms and sampling algorithms. But if you think about the language that is very rich and full of metaphors and like control over text in, in this context can actually get really hard. So it is still a big challenge when it comes to pushing neural energy systems in production, when we consider these ethical or bias issues that might originate from either training data or the, or the biases that we introduce into these models. And we talk about these in the paper, but uh, one example is that is, is that a, a chatbot, for instance, when it is deployed, can just answer a yes. Yes could be very, you know, okay answer, but it could also be an offensive given the context. So how do we actually, so these are the things that we do have to, we don't know how to solve them at this point. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot for that overview. Uh, that's, that's a lot of challenges. I yeah. hope we can uh, cover all those aspects in this, uh, in this conversation. <laughs> Let's uh, try to go over those. Um, so, right, you mentioned that there are many task-specific aspects uh, depending on what you're evaluating. But in general, uh, what aspects of text generation systems do we want to evaluate? And uh, uh, are there any other are there any aspects that are like generally applicable to all the tasks? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I thank you for this question. This is a very good question. I think that. There are generic characteristics of the text that humans, as humans, we can actually know how to judge by, by just reading a few sentences even, not even looking at the entire data. So these are criteria like the quality. So I mean, we've been using quality for, for like since NLG is out, like these are metrics that look at engram uh, matches between like what human gen, uh, or the reference output and the model generated output, even if it is a templated. Uh, the perplexity, for instance, is another one in language models. Accuracy, these are all quality, like you can cluster them in, in terms of quality, which we know that are very important when building or evaluating these language um, generation models. Then we have these other uh, metrics like fluency, 
that that comes natural to human to just by by reading, especially a native speaker, to judge how um, what uh, if text is fluent or not. But it may not be easy for for an evaluation metric. Uh, another one is grammaticality. Uh, which is also easy for humans. But, but there's other things like semantics where you judge the entire context, like the overall text. So those are things like cohesion, coherence, which you might be hearing, which it deals with the narrative uh, flow of the, of the text. If there are like, uh, if the relation, if, if like, for instance, the paragraph follows the previous one in a, a logical order. So these metrics are actually, like I said, non-trivial for humans, but Ironically, these are not that easy to fit for with automatic metrics. I think that almost all NLG models should actually carry these characteristics. It would be the ideal case, but there are I feel like there are other criteria we missed out, and they're coming out in the recent years, uh, especially when these models are con- considered to be deployed in real like production environments, uh, like for instance take a bank, for instance, using an automated generated system, and they're generating a, a, an email, for instance, automatically to send out their, like a, a big cluster of customers. And they would want this generated email to be perfect, right? I mean, I don't know what percent or how they measure, but one thing that they would be interested in measuring is this factual consistency or factual coherence, that it does not hallucinate or put a wrong entity uh, in an email or send it to us some uh, with a different uh, name or title. So I think that's the most important question here is to is the definition of the task, like what the output characteristics we are looking for in this generated text and go back and evaluate that text. And the generic ones should always be there, like this quality and fluency, but other things are mostly coming out these days depending on, on, on the task. In my opinion, we should be evaluating all these tasks, <laughs> but it's sometimes costly. So is that the only barrier cost uh, when are there some metrics that are specific only to certain tasks and we don't really want to use them for others not really okay. not cost maybe time complexity because some uh, evaluation metrics like especially human evaluations which i can give more details later might be actually harder to evaluate and it might require expertise in in evaluating so right Right. So since you mentioned uh, human evaluation, uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess uh, most uh, research that's done in text generation usually also has uh, human evaluation or it almost seems like that's the gold standard yeah. for evaluation. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Uh, is, it, is it because uh, the idea is that the end consumers of text generation systems are usually humans? Uh, is that the idea there? Um, I think so. I mean... The text generation is for humans and to improve humans' productivity. So the the end user and the reader would be the humans. So I would say that the best evaluators of that system would be the human uh, way of evaluating, right? I mean, all we do with these metrics is to mimic how humans would find the text or or judge it. So I guess that's my answer. Okay. And yeah, so what's the... Right. I mean, your your survey paper that I recently read, uh, it uh, mentions two kinds of human evaluation, intrinsic and extrinsic. Let's talk about the intrinsic evaluation setup first. What's, uh, what yeah. is the typical setup for uh, how intrinsic evaluation works? 
Yeah. So before we um, delve into these evaluations, both of them, like human evaluation in general, is is not that easy to evaluate. We can talk about that later if need be. Sure. Uh, we talked about this time-consuming stuff, what have you. Uh, but but these uh, we cluster them in in different settings because they have different challenges. So like you asked, like intrinsic evaluation is one. In intrinsic evaluation, we ask people to evaluate the quality of the generated text, for instance, in an NLG setting. So it might be required that uh, we show the source text because like assuming that these are semantically constrained, so there is a source or input text and, and it might be that we need to show it for the human to evaluate the output better. So for instance, machine translation uh, might be one example. So in this intrinsic evaluation metrics, we have uh, some certain criteria we do use generally, uh, but it might differ based on some task that judges were asked for. Like for instance, one of them is adequacy. Especially it applies to the machine translation task. It means like how much of the meaning expressed in the reference or, or human or gold standard, however you name it, is expressed in this target translation. We also care about in this intrinsic evaluations, the fluency aspect of the text, because for, like I said, for humans, it's actually easier to evaluate this quality metric, which asks if the language output is fluent or not. Coherency is another one which I am very interested in. My research uh, is around narrative coherence, not just in NLG, but other aspects of, of, of AI. It deals with how well the generated text uh, fits in, in the entire context. Other things that we ask in these intrinsic evaluation metrics are factuality, which has been started to be standard these days. It's just to check if, if the generated text is actually adhering to the facts in the source or maybe the actual like uh, human output, human generated output. So the way these intrinsic evaluation metrics are done is we typically show these judges text uh, or two texts side by side. One could be like the reference text, another could be a model generated text. But in, in other settings, there's been like three-way evaluations that humans are actually capable of uh, performing really well. Like you show, hey, hey, this is the reference and these are the two model outputs. Tell us which one is better performing in uh, the criteria that I mentioned uh, before. So this way, if there are like n different type of criteria, uh, we'll probably have like n different type of intrinsic evaluations, which is very rich. And then you can go back and evaluate uh, how your models are doing uh, with these experiments. So it actually um, introduces richness to your evaluation metrics and you can, you can uh, design it um, uh, in different ways. Is the evaluation uh, setup task specific as well? Are there some tasks where, uh, say, pairwise evaluation is more appropriate than a three-way evaluation or something? I think so. I would say yes. Okay, so these three ways, two ways are more common. But um, I think that uh, the model builder, like us researchers, if we are the ones doing these evaluations, should also look into ways um, to evaluate based on the task. Like, for instance, you know, you may be interested in the fact that some entities must appear, some constraints must appear in, 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 this, in the generated output. So you will probably uh, change the way um, you, you, maybe you add a Likert scale or maybe a radio button to rank them. But of course, none of these are, are, they have a lot of issues, which we can talk if you want, but 
they come with a bit of cost sometimes. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and uh, I guess so. Uh, I guess more generally, uh, when when you talk about pairwise uh, evaluation or three-way evaluation uh, and everything, that I guess the assumption here is that you're evaluating generated text against the reference text, and that's it. Right. Uh, are, are there? I mean, it seems to me at least that there are at least some tasks where you need additional input to such a setup. Right. I mean, say for example, you're doing question answering and you're evaluating generated answers. You probably at least need the question as well as the additional input. Right. Yeah. Yeah. True. Actually, uh, just a, a quick correction. We don't always show a reference to model in these side by side. We we might be interested in measuring the difference between two models. Uh, that mm -hmm. we build or a difference between a model and a state-of-the-art model, for instance, you could replace uh, any of those with any model. And But the, the judges don't need to know, of course, um, uh, and it's better that they don't. So, <laughs> um, so it's unbiased. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Right. So that's uh, intrinsic evaluation. You also mentioned that there are cases where an an extrinsic evaluation may be preferred or uh, easier to perform. Can you give us some examples? Absolutely, yeah. So I've actually been in, in, in the setting where we needed to do extrinsic evaluations. So you don't actually see these evaluations in NLP research publications uh, frequently because they sort of measure the system's overall quality, these extrinsic evaluations. Like for instance, they're mainly like the, one of the, the, the best examples to extrinsic evaluation is how voice enabled personal assistants are evaluated. So extrinsic evaluations measure the end to end performance. So humans evaluate the system by interacting with it. So mostly by trying out different scenarios, then they try to measure how successful the system is. Like for instance, if it's a task oriented dialogue system, they judge if, if the task has been fulfilled or not. So in these settings, the criteria used to evaluate these systems are obviously task dependent, especially for, uh, for extrinsic evaluations. For instance, like we gave an example from the dialogue scenario, um, after the human judge uh, interacts with the system, at the end, you ask, you get feedback from the human. And one of these feedbacks is, is towards obtaining more information about how the uh, the system did like for instance if if the system correctly completed the task like how many turns for instance for dialogue systems it is shorter dialogues are better i mean for other systems you don't care so it's very task specific so there's also things like engagement uh, is important in, in human or like maybe it's a chit chat dialogue so even though i think that the the best way to evaluate a system is human but the, the process can be actually very lengthy. Like for instance, especially in these days, we work from home. So you, if you have these judges, you need to send them the, the software or like the hardware just so they could try it out. They might have technical issues, connection issues and what have you, so you, you name it. So, so in my opinion, these kind of uh, evaluations, although the, the best way to evaluate your system before launching to everyone, like all uh, your um, community or, or the audience or customers, still uh, you need to invest in to get a better uh, performance out of these models. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I have a follow-up question to that. Oh, cool. How, do we have any idea about the correlation between these, ex 
these intrinsic evaluation metrics and later extrinsic evaluation like are good is are good evaluation metrics on in this initial intrinsic evaluation is that a good proxy for later good evaluation yeah that's a very good question and i that that's what I, that's what it should be so so we, I think like when we're building these systems, especially if it's like an interactive system, like a human dialogue system, or even building any machine learning model, we sort of we use this gradient descent. Like we look at our models might converge or stuck in local optima. Like you don't actually have, you, like your first trial, you don't have the best model. And what you really need to do is to rely on less costly, not involving, like non-human involving evaluation metrics. Uh, just so that you can actually get a better performance from your model. So once you do, then you can maybe go out and, and then extrinsic evaluation might follow if you need one. Not all, obviously, NLG tasks need an extrinsic evaluation. But um, in terms of trust, like if you are trusting your model uh, with, with some, not just one, but maybe uh, several different automatic evaluation metrics that is suitable to your task, then it might be time to go out and, and evaluate with humans. Maybe a small controlled experiment with humans is a better way before you launch it to, uh, especially if you're doing extrinsic evaluations, would be a better way. Right. So uh, we talked about how uh, human evaluation is the gold standard for evaluating text generation systems. But it seems to me that um, a big disadvantage is when humans don't agree with each other. Yeah. And uh, as opposed to automated metrics, uh, humans, uh, human judgments are subjective, right? So how do yeah. we deal with the subjective aspect of it? Yeah, so this is uh, in literature called inter-annotator agreement usually, and, and maybe we should define that uh, for, for the audience. So it's, it's a measure where we have, say, two annotators and we can, we'd, we'd like to know to what degree they agree with their judgments. So actually it's, it's a matter of like, the question is why we use this inter-annotator agreement is more important. It is because like you said, there's a subjectivity in judging about things. There are like, there are things that are not observable, uh, not clear by looking at the text. For instance, things like semantics, how do you evaluate deeper semantics? So because of this, there's this need to evaluate such human subjectivity. So like, for instance, if you are uh, producing human-labeled data, inter-annotated agreement would measure the quality of the collected data by um, uh, assessing to what extent the, the humans disagree. So how do we deal with issues? So that's, <laughs> that's really a hard question. Uh, it's, it's still a little bit of an expertise goes a long way in, in this. So the question is more related to gathering quality information from humans. So there are studies that have, that use like human ratings that are so, yeah, like highly subject to personal and interpretation biases. And this actually in the end yields noisy human labels. So we really don't want that. So, so these, what these annotation or like these experimentations do is they measure or increase, in order to increase the quality of the collected data, they look, look into several different metrics. Like for instance, they, if like say you have a very low inter-annotator agreement, this doesn't necessarily mean that your models are performing bad or 
it might probably be that your design or the uh, annotation design might be might not be the the right way of, of evaluating this the task that you're looking into. So changing the labeling experiment, adding maybe novice or more experienced humans, and looking into like their differences and correlations is is one way. Another way is which we mentioned I think in the paper is either using rating or ranking. So to human humans, uh, it's easier to rank things than rate, like using a scalar value. So maybe you need to change it, uh, you know, a ranking task than a rating task. So um, uh, also, like we mentioned, comparative tasks, like side-by-side -side tasks are easier. So um, there are other ways we could uh, probably uh, invest, but like I said, I'm actually not that expert in, in doing this, but I've been doing human evaluations for a long time uh, to know these issues. But um, I always, in my experiments, you know, consult uh, experts uh, to, especially if, if the task is, is new. Okay. Yeah, that, that, uh, that makes sense. And uh, in, you, you made this very good point about uh, how a low inter-annotated agreement doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the annotators are not doing a good job. It could also yeah. be that your task is not well-defined or uh, that your annotation guidelines are not clear enough or yeah. things like that, right? So given that given that observation, do you think uh, it's probably not necessarily a good idea to push for higher, high inter-annotator agreements all the time? Uh, yeah. And are there other reasons why you don't want to do that? Yeah. Well, this is an ex excellent question. And, and I... Um... I don't know how to answer it, but I'm going to uh, sort of tell a little bit about of, of my experience. This actually usually comes in evaluations of, of a lot of NLP tasks, not just NLG tasks, in my opinion. So the question is, like, if we have obtained several sets of annotations from different experts and the results show that their annotations highly agree, should you blindly accept them? Well, I would say <laughs> this, uh, this happens when your experiment setting is perhaps under-specified. Like for instance, it's easy to explain this with an example, I guess. Like for instance, say you have an image captioning model and you trained it with a lot of data and you use like transfer learning and adversarial training and, and you have a fantastic performing model and even your automatic metrics have shown great performance. So in the scenario, there's this high chance that the humans would probably easily detect that the baseline is underperforming and the agreement will be really high. Uh, this is a very classical case of under-experimentation in human evaluations. So, um, I don't know, maybe um, another scenario in which human agreements might be high is when experiments are conducted with non-expert annotators or maybe noisy uh, labelers because we use these platforms like uh, you know, uh, open platforms and in those settings, any annotator can join in. So, you know, like I said, uh, some expert knowledge in doing how to do human evaluations is required in these settings when you get these like really high uh, inter-annotator agreements. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that, that makes sense, thanks. So, right, I mean, that's, uh, we talked about human uh, evaluation. Uh, I think it would be nice to move, move on to uh, how we can automatically measure performance of uh, text generations not involving humans because we seem to be doing a lot of that uh, lately. Right, so automatic metrics like blue, rouge, uh, measures like that, are they 
all supposed to be proxies for human evaluation. What exactly is the motivation behind them? Um, yeah, um, this is actually a great question. I think there's potential utility with using both human and automatic metrics together. So if you think about training your model, uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, before the model converts to local optimum and global optimum, what have you, uh, we, we do need to understand how this model performing. Like we have a way of knowing between like zero and one uh, compared to other, other models that we know of, uh, this new model is performing. So in that sense, automatic metrics are very useful. If the model being trained is not converged or underperforming, there's, this, there's no point in taking that and asking humans how we did while we know that it actually doesn't perform well, right? So in addition to thing, I think uh, automated metrics, task agnostic or not, provide a way to compare a model to gold output or maybe two outputs. Uh, so it's like a, a visual or, or like, a, like in perception, you have some sort of an idea that tells you how this model is doing compared to other models. So they're actually really valuable and important in that sense. Also, there's this fact that, which we discussed about human subjectivity, the challenges in human evaluations. One might rely on, on automatic metrics in those cases. If like, for instance, your task is really, really hard and, and even for human judges. So a little bit of a, a more clear idea might be obtained by looking at these human very automatic evaluation metrics. Right. But when we try to assess the quality of these automatic metrics, we usually talk about how well they correlate with human judgments, right? Is, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, it is true. In natural language generation, there are um, these criteria like, like we talked about like fluency, redundancy, coherence, and overall, what have you. So with these metrics, these engram metrics and, and their variations that come with these automatic metrics, it's really important that we use these human evaluations and see if they, they agree. So if the metric can actually measure at least some aspect of the humans we care about beyond n-gram overlap, overlap, I would say it's, this metric is high quality. So for instance, maybe a metric like Meteor, in addition to n-gram similarities, actually looks into some contextual similarity, which in some cases performs much better than you know, n-gram metrics. So actually this issue becomes more pronounced with language variability issues. For instance, if the task is like abstractive summarization uh, or even machine translation in which there are different ways or different word usages uh, of saying the same thing or same meaning. So the metric that is focused on an engram match between the reference and the model generated text rather is not suitable for this task. So unless maybe multiple references are used, then you might get a better out of your metrics. But it um, doesn't necessarily mean that these metrics are less quality, but maybe not suitable for the task. So, so as, as model builders, we need to be careful about what metric we choose and how to evaluate and underlying like the intuition about these metrics, not just because state-of-the-art models use it or the paper before us use it. We need to know what they actually really mean when we evaluate, even if they are very standard metrics, in my opinion. There are other metrics like which measure maybe beyond n-gram similarity or even n-gram similarity. You can consider like, for instance, entities or relation match, 
these are things that a automatic metric can actually evaluate, but we go and ask humans to evaluate other things like fluency or grammaticality. So if you think about it, an entity uh, or like a metric evaluating entity match, a uh, human evaluating on fluency, and, and you expect the, the correlation between them while they're actually looking at different things. So then that's a poor experimentation or evaluation experimentation in that sense that uh, we need to be careful about. Yeah, that, that's a great point. You mentioned uh, language variability and how some automatic metrics are not uh, good enough to capture them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think going further in that uh, along in in that line of thought, do you think uh, automatic metrics are generally equally applicable to all languages, or are they more English centric? They are, in my opinion, more English centric. Most of them, I think. The answer is no in this case. So uh, there is this free order. Uh, I had to look that up. Uh, actually, free word order languages. So right. these languages are like Slavic languages. Persian is one of them. Turkish is another one, which is my mother tongue, actually. Um, right. it's, it's, so this, what this means is like this free order languages is very similar to how we do this sort of prosody in English without changing the order. But in those languages... In order to reflect that prosody, what we do in English, you change the order to change. Uh, this is just just for emphasis. So in these languages, the sentence order or the word order might change, and then it might actually mean totally different things. So if you have a metric that is very keen on the word order, then then it may not be suitable for these like free order word order languages. Also, um, it, uh, it applies to morphologically rich languages and Turkish is also another one. So these languages have lots of morphemes. Morphemes are like things like the suffixes that you add to, to the words like cat, cats, you make that plural. English doesn't have as many as morphologically rich languages do. Uh, so the, like in these languages, order of morphemes is very important. And if you change the order, the meaning changes. Uh, and and like if, especially in machine translation, this 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 is more pronounced and more important. So it's important that researchers working with these languages should also be careful about what kind of evaluation metric they choose. Right, right, yeah. These are uh, serious challenges, and I guess yeah. we don't really have great uh, solutions to these problems yet. I agree. Um, but uh, let's talk about uh, a couple of popular evaluation metrics and maybe go over what the limitations are. Blue, I guess, is probably the most popular metric. Uh, and uh, I understand that it's a precision-based metric. Can you can you explain to us uh, how exactly Blue works? I, maybe I just give an intuitive explanation of what, how it works. Uh, I think any every NLP researcher have used Blue in their lives in one way or another. So um, it's always good to define or give an intuition. So thanks for asking. So, um, so Blue compares like this consecutive phrases, especially using machine translation, I should say that. And then it finds like consecutive phrases it finds in reference and, and it goes back and tries to find them in, in the reference translation. Um, and it counts the number of the matches. But then it has this property called brevity penalty. It's like a weight, weighted measure. What it is, is it's interested in the, the length of the generation. And especially it, it cripples or um, the generated text, like when the generated text is actually really short, then you might get like a worse uh, blue scores. So it deals with the fact that if there is a large gap between the length of the reference sentence 
and and the length of the generated sentence, then the reward penalty in the limit would be really small and it will reduce your blue score. So in short, blue is an engram overlap measure uh, between the candidate and the reference translation with a uh, with a weight which we call brevity penalty for shorter outputs. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, uh, that's useful. Yeah. And uh, it it seems like there are many moving paths in this. I mean, or at least there could be many moving paths in this, right? I mean, how do you tokenize the text before you use blue to uh, evaluate or? Yeah. Uh, maybe the you mentioned uh, engram overlap, I guess, and there is this hyperparameter called n, uh, or denoted as n, which is uh, uh, the odd, the maximum order of the engrams you're using. And there are many such differences, right? So given these, it seems like there is. Uh, I mean, when people say they used blue, uh, it maybe is not immediately obvious how exactly they used it. Is it a standard implementation of blue that people use, uh, or are there variations there? Uh, yeah, I would say no. <laughs> uh, I've seen like we have these several standard implementations, like Nest and Moses, and um, I can't remember the other ones. NLTK is another one. There are some standard implementations. I I actually don't know uh, many of those, but um, but because of non-standardization and it just does not happen just in blue it happens in in rouge scores as well we get variations in in our comparisons and and it might be an advantage or disadvantage to to the model builder um so it's it's a it's a totally different dimension that we, we could talk uh, for an hour i suppose but um i don't think that maybe for blue we have uh because we have this like most of the publications use NLTK and they report that they use NLTK, but uh, anyone can go and because these are easy to implement uh, and implement a blue metric and, and report that be like maybe they, they use stemming or maybe some other lemmatization and what have you uh, to synthetically improve their blue score while it, they're underperforming. So that's actually an issue which was not your question, but I'm actually really uh, thinking that this is, this is a problem that we should be uh, really paying attention to, especially when reporting our results. Right. Yeah. Oh, just one, one follow-up question about the kind of standard setup. We were talking yeah. earlier about how sometimes there are multiple ways of paraphrasing or summarizing or translating. So in the, in the typical setup with these automatic metrics, is one reference used or do you kind of use multiple references and get the automatic metrics using those and then combine them in some way, or is there no standard? Yeah. So um, I think mm, there are variations. I mean, I could say standard because most people know that if you use more, like in machine translation, if you use additional references, your blue score might improve because you get like more out of, uh, you know, more matches and then blue is over the corpus. So you can improve your blue score that way. It depends on the task. For machine translation, using multiple references is sort of standard. For summarization tasks, for instance, it, it may not be that standard or for a not, not that common, like for instance, text simplification task, would you be using multiple references? Uh, I don't know. You probably need to try out and, and, and see which one works better. But most people, in other than MTN summarization, dealing with these NLG tasks, but probably using a single reference uh, to measure and maybe not blue, but some other metric um, like rouge, I suppose. Got it. Right. 
And right. So Rouge, uh, I know that is uh, more commonly used in summarization. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so can you explain to us uh, how Rouge is different from Blue? So Blue, like we said, it's, it's, it's precision. So it, you look at how much the engrams in the hypothesis, like this generated text appears in the reference text. Rouge is the other way around. So it measures how much the engrams in the reference appeared in the machine generated text. So Rouge has, so in a sense, Rouge looks at recall and blue is like precision. But um, I would argue that blue is also sort of looking at recall because, because of this brevity penalty, because you're looking at the reference, like it penalizes the model generated results when they are shorter than reference. So by penalizing brevity in this, this generated text, on reference, we're introducing the account on this on this recall. So nothing is keeping us from using blue or rouge in summarization tasks, but rouge scores are sort of geared towards assessing longer text because like, for instance, they have this several variants like rouge L, which is longest common subsequence, which doesn't necessarily look at the consecutive word matches, but also a longer span of engram matches. And these are important, especially if you are interested in capturing the salient entities uh, in the generated text. So Rouge might be a better, I suppose, uh, for summarization or for some other longer text generation evaluations than Blue. Okay. Okay. And uh, I guess I could ask the same question that I asked for Blue here as well. I mean, given that there are so many variants of Rouge, uh, do you think uh, research papers uh, on summarization are consistent in how they use Rouge? Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the most common way to report in summarization, pa- I've been publishing summarization papers for quite some time to, to, to <laughs> actually say a few things about this, is uh, Rouge 1 and 2 is most commonly used because then you want to actually compare your models in terms of fluency. But you, most commonly, uh, we look at Rouge L, like this longest common subsequence measure. It mandates that, you know, it doesn't mandate like blue, this consecutive um, matching. But um, I want to also add that, okay, Rouge 1, Rouge 2, Rouge L. There are other variations, like for instance, it does do word stemming, stop word removal and other things. You can, uh, those could also be reported in the papers. But um, I would say that those are not enough. We need to... Because they're like, uh, especially in summarization with like longer text generation, we do value other things. Uh, Like for instance, uh, narrative coherence is something that I care about. Rouge to a degree might measure, I suppose, but but not the continuation that's this flow of concepts in a text. So So in that case, I feel like uh, just reporting Rouge scores is not enough. Uh, today, luckily, in, in NLP conferences, we do see an appended uh, human evaluation that comes with uh, any of the summarization or long text, any, uh, any text generation these days, which I'm happy about. Except there are things that I'm not happy about. Like, for instance, the human evaluation sections of these papers are really short. And they're not, they're under-examined. Like we discussed uh, the experimentation, like the human evaluation experimentation might be underspecified and there could be like other issues that needs to be evaluated and reported that like as readers, as a scientific uh, reporting should be really, we need to, uh, again, we need to spend uh, or have a subsection for 
uh, different type of evaluations other than Rouge evaluations for, for these text generation, especially in LG, long text in LG. Oh, thanks. Yeah, right. Uh, talking about the limitations of these metrics, I think is a great segue into the more recent uh, developments on using learned metrics for text generation. Uh, it seems like a pretty exciting research topic. Can you tell us why, uh, can you can you give us a uh, a summary or a brief overview of uh, the recent development? So, yeah, there's been a, um, a lot in the last two, three years, I suppose, that are coming out. I think it's uh, mostly related to the fact that like these BERT or like these transformer-based language models, language generation or encoding models are doing really well now that we really want to try out if these actually do well in our evaluation, in the evaluation context, because like we have these fantastic language models and we're using metrics from 2000s, which mainly focus on word overlap. So I, I it's like, it's very natural that we do today to focus on these, um, uh, on these model base. Now, I'd like to mention that there are like issues uh, with training these, these metrics, which we can talk if you, if need be. But again, with any metric that comes with, <laughs> there comes a cost that we need to deal with. Yeah, right. So I think I think that's a uh, that's definitely a very interesting thing, thing to talk about. It, I mean, on the on the surface, it generally seems like a. I think at least to me, it seems like a crazy idea to to train a metric. Uh, I mean, given <laughs> that we know that our models uh, have many limitations, and uh, we have been talking, I and mean, there are lots of papers published about how models are not learning the things that we want them to learn. Given all these limitations, it seems crazy that we are applying these models to evaluation. So how exactly do you think are we getting around those issues? Yeah. So like I said, this, these are new issues that we're encountering and, and we're recently starting to look at, into these issues. So these trained evaluation models are trained on data set collected manually or maybe automatically or semi-automatically from web, like with a weekly supervised fashion, and then they're trained based on that, those type of labels. So I think that the biggest limitation of this today, it might change tomorrow, is building these uh, machine learning based models is how to mimic the human way of evaluating this, right? I mean, we are using just, just the label, like human input, and then the input. And then we're sort of asking these bird style or like these very large transformer-based models to figure out the relation between just single input and, and this data set, uh, like natural language data set. So while there's this, like, I feel like there's this two sides of this coin. Like we know human evaluation results are noisy. There's like, we talked about how subjective they are, uh, especially for some tasks. It's even hard to get human agreements on them. But on the other side, we have these really very large models, very efficient models that can actually work on their noise. And we know how to work with them by adding some adversaries, like noisy input. So maybe the fact that we would need a lot of human evaluations might actually solve and might actually help us to go towards this into solving, like getting better evaluation, like trustable uh, models uh, or reliable models, I suppose. Right. I guess model reliability is uh, <laughs> uh, also a, a big topic yeah. Uh, yeah. to discuss on its own. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, 
Right. For example, you mentioned factual correctness a yeah. couple of times in our conversation. Do you think we are closer to evaluating factual correctness with these uh, trained metrics than we were earlier? <laughs> I think so. I'm going to actually answer this question with with uh, with a study that I've done with my interns over the summer. So we, what we did is we investigated language generation evaluation metrics. So we looked at two different problems. One of them was language models. So so two ways we evaluated was in, like in current language models is perplexity and downstream tasks, like, you know, semantically constrained task performance or something. So none of these are actually that reliable, like you said. So we investigated different ways of evaluating language models beyond these two metrics, like beyond perplexity. And one of the things that we looked at was factual correctness. So for instance, recent work has found that these state-of-the-art language models actually frequently hallucinate information. So when performing these generation tasks, like for instance, summarization, it's hard even for humans to discern the difference between a model-generated and human-generated, like fake or real text which actually is, in my opinion, very risky. So frankly, these factual consistency metrics are pretty new to me. I mean, I'm working in language generation for a long time now and have uh, like yet to use these evaluation metrics. I'm a little bit skeptical. So what I ask my interns is to instead put all these factual consistency metrics that came out under microscope and see which one works better in which scenarios, in which domains? We looked at, uh, we changed, uh, we looked at a spectrum of domains and we looked at different dimensions, like if they are accurate or how sensitive these are, for instance. And we came up with meta-evaluation, um, which I can talk about. Uh, we haven't published it, but, but, but our findings are, are we, we're going to hopefully submit soon, are incredible. Okay, that sounds quite <laughs> tempting. Uh, can you can you please tell us yeah. more about yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to. So, um, so we define good measure, like good factual consistency measure. So we came up with like this meta evaluation of factual consistencies because I think that's the biggest limitation. Like I told you, we don't. I mean, like you, there are three factual consistency measures. Like how, how how do you know they're actually doing the right? Like which one is good? So obviously we don't know. So we created some sort of guidelines, if you will, or meta-evaluation. However, we don't even have a name yet to you know, how one should uh, measure the degree to factual consistency of these metrics. So uh, one of the things we consider, so we consider several dimensions. Dom domains is another one. By domain, I mean like, for instance, we uh, take summarization. A, a domain would be like archive domain or could be like meeting summarization domain. They're totally different. Uh, how do we use factual consistency in these domains? So we define correctness as one meta-evaluation of a factual met evaluation metric. Like think about a document, factually correct summary, partially factually correct summary, and factually incorrect summary. So these factually correct, so is this, is this metric can actually correctly sort them. So this is one way of, of measuring correct. Sensitivity. We've done a lot of uh, sensitivity analysis, which, uh, like for instance, like two summaries with different levels of factual inconsistencies. Should we? They should be reflected in magnitude, right? I mean, uh, you need to by by, by looking. But this metric should it should tell one is more factually incorrect than the other with this metric. So there there should be some upper bound and lower bound in these factual correctness. 
And then there's a sensitivity about like how much uh, factual consistency, inconsistencies in these, in, in the text, and they should be able to measure that sensitivity, capture the sensitivity. I think that especially if these systems are going to be used in human applications, we need to definitely need to be aware of these. Um, so uh, one more thing that I want to add here is that in the old days, blue and rouge, when they came out, came out, uh, these, you know, this NIST and, and document understanding, like this doc organizations have organized workshops around investigating how good these metrics are. There are like several papers. If you search how good blue is online, you'll probably find thousands. And we, in my opinion, we need to have with these new factual evaluation metrics, we need to have some sort of, like I said, we're going to come to the standardization or at least like a deeper evaluation of these, these uh, metrics are because they're very important. So that's why we focus on this meta evaluation. And uh, so what I want to say is that blue is common use metrics. It's not by chance because it's been investigated a lot and it's been invested in, in a lot of resources. So we should do the same for the new ones. That's a great point. Uh, thanks. That, that's quite fascinating. Uh, it, uh, it really seems like uh, research and evaluation is quite interesting and important. And yeah, so, right. I had a couple more questions, but I think we're out of time. So let me ask you just a, uh, one or two most important questions that I have left. What do you think are the, are the outstanding challenges uh, in the field of evaluating next generation systems, and what what do you think we should focus on more beyond uh, beyond the ones that you just uh, yeah. uh, mentioned? Yeah. So, like I mentioned, things that are harder to evaluate for humans will still be hard for models, in my opinion. Right. Uh, so, like things like common sense, or things like artistic aspects. Like, for instance, a poetry is really not that easy to evaluate. Things like engagement in conversations or engagement in novels, even, or empathy. So these are the things that are hard and they're going to stay even you know, become harder when we, and with these new large, uh, these powerful language models generating uh, poems for us and other things like subjective to humans or topics that you cannot actually get away from partisan thinking. And there, there's gonna, always going to be issues with evaluation in these cases. And, and one more thing that I'm, these days I'm very interested in is, is this multimodal environments that require long horizons and maybe longer conversations between these agents. Things like that is, is going to be really challenging to evaluate the performance of the agents. Uh, we're currently doing evaluating them based on the task completion, but not looking at like the overall horizon and how they interacted with users. Did they use the language well? Things like that is is in my opinion are still challenging. Great, yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't ask you? Uh, these are what we talked about, like the most important parts. I think, I think we did well. <laughs> okay. So this was good. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks a lot. I learned a lot from this conversation. Uh, this was quite interesting. Thank you. Okay. Thank Same you. Here. Thank you.